Today, we pick back up our sermon series through the book of Hebrews. We are in chapter five. Before we read it, let me just catch you up a little bit. If you uh, maybe are recently joined with us or maybe since it's been about a month since we read the book of Hebrews, let me just give you a little bit of context so we know where we are. The book of Hebrews was written by an anonymous author. We don't know who wrote it from a human perspective, but we do know that all scripture is breathed out by God. And so uh, God wrote this book of the Bible. God is the one who gave it to us. We also know that it was originally, it was a sermon that was then transcribed and turned into a letter and passed around to a number of churches. And so that's kind of where we get our our sermon series, the title, The Sermon God Wrote, because uh, it was originally a sermon and we don't know who the human author is. And this author is writing to a group of of particularly Jewish Christians, people who uh, had been raised in Jewish customs and practices and now were followers of Jesus, the Messiah, but they were experiencing hardship. They were experiencing persecution. And our author is speaking to them and writing to them, encouraging them to persevere, to, to stick close to Jesus. Even though things are hard, even though there are many challenges, don't turn away from Jesus. And in particular, for these original hearers, don't turn back to the older forms of worship because there's a new temple and there's a new sacrifice and there's a new high priest and it's all fulfilled in the person of Jesus. He's greater, he's better, he's far superior and so So whatever you do, don't turn away from Jesus. That's really the message of the book of Hebrews. And so today uh, in chapter five, where we pick up, we, we find ourselves kind of in the middle of a discussion about Jesus, our high priest. And so uh, if you missed uh, the couple of sermons before Christmas time, around, maybe around Thanksgiving, I would encourage you to go to our website and you can listen to those sermons and get more of an understanding of what it means that Jesus is our high priest. But today we'll read verses seven through 10 and then I'll pray. And we'll spend some time unpacking these verses together. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that this book is not a static book, but it's living and active. We thank you that this book is not a dry and dusty set of rules, but it's a story that points us to a great savior whose name is Jesus. God, I ask that by your Holy Spirit today, you would help us to lay aside, set aside whatever distractions, whatever things are are on our mind, whatever things we might be uh, wrestling with or carrying in our hearts. God, would you help us to lay those things aside and have eyes right now to to see Jesus, have ears right now to hear from Jesus, to have hearts right now to be changed more like Jesus. And God, would you give me the lips to speak only truth about Jesus? I pray we would be transformed today. I pray we would be changed as a result of gathering together today, as a result of singing, as a, as a result of listening to these words of the scripture, as a result of celebrating the Lord's table. Would you change us? 
to look more like Jesus in whose name we pray. And everyone said, amen. Let me ask you a question. Do you remember the last time that you cried? When was the last time that you cried? For some of you, maybe it was on your way here today. Uh, for others of you, maybe it's been a few years. I can tell you the, the last time I cried. I can give you the exact date. It was Friday, December 18th, just a few weeks ago. And, and some of you are thinking, that date sounds familiar. Yes, that was the release date, the opening date of the new Star Wars movie. Now, I didn't cry for the reason that you're thinking, okay? So I saw people posting on Facebook, I love the new Star Wars movie. I cried, I cried. But the reason is this. A few weeks before the movie came out, I bought tickets early. Uh, I was really looking forward to going. I actually, get this, I actually told my, my oldest two daughters that I would take them out of school for the day so that we could go to an earlier showing and avoid the crazy crowds. I was going for Father of the Year in 2015. I think I did a pretty good job. And we were ready to go. And the day before, the night before, Thursday night, I got violently sick. I know, right? And, and, and I'll spare you the details, but needless to say, I was awake all night. I was very ill. The next morning, I slept in, and my daughters were kind of looking at each other like, well, mom didn't make us go to school. We're, we're still going to go to the movie. Is mom going to take us? That would never happen. So we're looking at, you know, trying to figure out what's going to happen. And about an hour before the movie, I told the girls, okay, I'm, I'm alive enough. I'm awake enough. Let's go to the new Star Wars movie. We've been waiting for this for weeks. And so I, I dragged my poor sick behind to the movie theater and we went in and we got there. And I realized as we walked in, as they handed me the 3D glasses that I bought 3D IMAX tickets, not only was it, you know, 3D swimming graphics, but then the loud, you know, explosions and lightsaber battles. Somewhere during like the third scene of fighting and explosions, that's when I noticed there were tears rolling down my cheeks because my head hurt so bad from being really, really sick. I can remember the last time I cried. Can you remember the last time you cried? I have uh, four little girls in my house. We're, we're used to crying in our house. Uh, actually, one of my daughters yesterday, she kind of woke up, was a little grumpy. She got some food. We talked. We prayed. We snuggled. And about a half hour later, she came up to me and said that she goes, Dad, you know, after, sometimes after I cry and then we talk and we snuggle, sometimes I just want to cry and talk and snuggle some more. I'm like, I just don't relate to that at all, but good for you. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of sadness in the world. There's a lot of brokenness in the world. You know that antidepressant medications, I don't need to quote statistics to you, but, but antidepressant medications, it's billions of dollars of industry, that, that self-help books are, are millions and millions of dollars of, of industry every year. It's a, it's a big deal to try to help people in our culture not be sad. We spend a lot of money. We spend a lot of effort. We spend a lot of energy trying to help people feel happier. You know, we live in the most prosperous nation really in the history of the world. We have more uh, uh, comforts, more conveniences, more pleasures, more diversions, more entertainment than almost any culture in human civilization before us. And yet we're not getting happier. In fact, the statistics are alarming. Why are we so sad? Why is it that despite all of our money and all of our efforts and all of our entertainment and all of our amusement, why do we still so often find ourselves sad, sorrowful, and depressed? The Bible has a lot to say about sadness. 
The Bible has a lot to say about sadness. Uh, verses like Proverbs 18, 14. Solomon writes, a man's spirit will endure sickness, but a crushed spirit, who can bear? What he's saying is, you know, if your body is broken, your spirit can rise above, right? We've, we've maybe known people who have had cancer and they've just fought it very bravely because their, their spirit sort of kind of rises up within them and they can face physical sickness. But what happens when the mechanism inside that's supposed to help you rise up is crushed and broken? What happens when your spirit is devastated? How are you going to endure? Bible has some surprising things to say about sadness. Like this verse in Ecclesiastes, this is also Solomon writing. He says, sorrow is better than laughter for by sadness of the face, the heart is made glad. Isn't that interesting? And I almost, it's almost basically saying that, that sometimes, I think this is what Solomon's saying. Sometimes we skip over sadness. We wanna get right to the happy part. We wanna get right to the middle of the cinnamon roll, Right? We, you do it, I know you. We want to get right to the good part, right to the happy part. We, we, we don't want to go through all that sadness, but actually by skipping out on the sadness, by, by turning a blind eye, by, by not being honest about the reality of the brokenness in the world, we actually miss out on a deeper, more abiding joy. I actually think that's a little bit what my daughter was saying to me yesterday. Sometimes after I've cried and we've talked and we've snuggled, I want to cry and talk and snuggle some more because by this sadness of face, there's actually a deeper joy to be experienced. The Bible is really honest about the struggles of many of the people uh, in the Bible about deep darkness, deep sorrow and sadness, times that they went through. You look at men like Moses who despaired when he was leading the people of Israel. You look like people, people like, like Job who went through just an, an absolute horrendous ordeal and, and was in sorrow and despair. You look at Jonah who was uh, depressed because God was so merciful and loving to the wicked Ninevites. You look at a prophet named Jeremiah who was known as the weeping prophet. That's pretty emo. That's like a... That's like a band name right there. You look at the Apostle Paul, he talks about despairing of life. And yes, you look at Jesus. Jesus Christ, the, the Son of God. He's no mere man. He is God who became a man. And yet Jesus Christ was known as the man of sorrows. Jesus Christ, in the verse that we read today, was known for praying with loud cries and tears. And that, in fact, is our big idea for today. That's really the point of these verses is this. Through the sorrow of Jesus, you and I can experience deep joy even in the midst of our hardship. Through the sorrow and the sadness and the suffering that Jesus went through, all of us who place our faith in him can actually experience the joy of God even as we face sadness, even as we face Sorrow, that's the big idea. Now, I wanna unpack these verses. I wanna take them a little bit out of order today. I wanna take them out of order. I actually wanna go to verse eight first because as we were reading through these verses, you may have noticed a couple of phrases that if you're paying attention, they might've jumped out at you. They might've stood out to you because they, they raised some questions. They raised some, some tough questions. And so I wanna address those first before then we zero in on this idea of Jesus crying with, with loud cries and tears. Going through verse eight, it says this. Although he was a son, he learned obedience. That's interesting phrase number one. He learned obedience 
through what he suffered and being made perfect. Ooh, that's another interesting phrase. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Actually, there are three tough questions that come out of this set of verses. The first one could be, who in the world is Melchizedek? And I'll just say it to you again. I want you to just put Melchizedek's name up on the shelf for about another month. We'll, we'll get to him in detail uh, next month. But for right now, just knowing that Jesus is our great high priest. But these two phrases, he learned obedience to what he suffered and he made perfect. These are interesting phrases. Let's look at this first one, that he learned obedience through what he suffered. What does it mean that Jesus learned obedience? Those of you who are familiar with the Bible, familiar with the story of Jesus' life, you would probably be thinking if you, if you were just reading these verses, well, wait a minute, I thought that Jesus was always obedient. I thought that Jesus perfectly obeyed God. What did it mean that he had to learn obedience? Was he unruly and disobedient for a while and then he changed his ways and became obedient? The key word here in this phrase is not obedience, it's learned. Learned. This really boils down to how do you know something? How do you know something? In our culture, we have colleges and universities and seminaries and graduate schools. We have uh, really emphasized the cognitive learning, the, the, the putting information into your brain side of learning. And there is nothing wrong with cognitive learning. It is good to have information. Amen? It's good to have uh, knowledge. It's good to, to uh, go to school and to study those things. But let me ask you a question. How many of you would want to have a surgery performed on you by a doctor who had been through 8, 12 years of medical school but had never performed a single procedure on someone before, right? See, there's a difference between maybe what we could call book learning versus experiential learning. You can know something on paper. You can know something because you read it in a book. You can know something because you know about something. But to the Jewish people and to honestly most of the ancient world, you didn't really know something unless you had walked through it and you had done it. It's experiential knowledge. I was talking with Kyle, one of our staff members, he talked about how when he served in the army, he, he did uh, three tours overseas. He talked about how hard it was to um, respect certain officers that came in because some of the officers would go in through officer school. They would get their college degrees, but they'd never served a day in the field. And when they would land over in the field, all of these soldiers who had been serving on the ground would start getting all these orders. They say, you don't actually know what you're talking about. You're telling us information from a book, but we, the soldiers here on the ground, know what the reality of war is like. We know what it's like to have people shooting at us, and it's not like you read in your textbooks. Kyle said that the best officers were the ones who came from the enlisted men and actually went through officer school later because they had the, the, the book knowledge as well as the practical experience. Kyle said those were the best officers to serve for. What we're talking about here is Jesus going through Every single hardship that you and I face as human beings and yet remaining perfectly obedient to the will of God through it all. Jesus, the son of God, 
did not move into the role of high priest by just saying, well, I know what it's like. No, he demonstrated for us. He showed us that he was willing to walk through all of our sufferings, all of our hardships, all of the pain that we experienced. He learned obedience through what he suffered. And maybe, maybe, here's, a, maybe here's an analogy that will help you. Think of a, of a company that has a man who owns it and he wants to hand the company off to his son. And so the son goes away to college, gets his degree in business, and comes back, but he does not immediately move into the corner office and take charge of the company. The father says, son, first you're going to go work in the warehouse, and you're going to do some stocking for a while. Then you're going to go work in the mailroom. Then you're going to work at the front desk, and you're going to do reception, and you're going to meet the name, you know, the people who come in and out and the other employees. Then you're going to work in sales, and you're going to meet our clients. And then you're going to work in accounting, and then you're going to go work in HR, and you're going to learn the business from the ground up. And after all of that, then you get to move into the corner office and take over command of the company. In a very real sense, this is what is going on. Jesus is a son. Although he is a son, that is the language of heirship. The Bible would tell us that God the Father is giving all things to his son, that Jesus is the heir of all things, that Jesus is now in charge of the world. But he didn't get to just move into that role because he showed up and was the son. No, that Jesus went through, proverbially speaking, the mailroom. Jesus went through every step of the way what we go through. And it's in that sense that we see in verse nine that he is made perfect. We're not talking about moral perfection. We're talking about being made perfect for the role of high priest. The high priest we saw a few weeks ago is, is someone who represents the people. You don't want someone serving as high priest if they don't come from the people. Jesus is one of us. Isn't that good to know? Yes, he is God. Yes, he came from heaven to earth, but he is also fully man. And because of that, he's made perfect. It's not moral perfection we're talking about here. We're talking about perfect for the role of high priest. Here's what one Bible commentator, Brian Small, says. Here's how he put it. When Jesus took on human flesh, he was asked to do something he never had to do before in his preexistent state. Isn't that an interesting thought? He was asked to suffer and die on behalf of humanity. So while Jesus was never in discord with his father, Jesus had to demonstrate obedience in a manner he had not previously experienced. In this respect, it appears that this is what is meant by Jesus learning obedience. His obedience maintained his sinless perfection, and in this respect, he was made perfect. One more from a commentator, Marie Isaacs. She says this, the perfecting of Jesus, therefore, has nothing to do with his moral perfectibility, but refers to the process whereby he fulfilled his vocational qualifications of Melchizedekian priesthood. By the way, if you're looking for a word to use to impress somebody at a football party, that's the one, Melchizedekian priesthood. All, all that's saying, it's a fancy way of saying that Jesus is now perfect for the job of high priest because of what he went through. He's perfect for the role of taking our concerns before the Father, pleading our case before the heavenly father. You know what also it means? It means that he is the source of eternal salvation. Look at this. 
being made perfect, he became the source of what kind of salvation, Sound City? Eternal, not just any salvation, eternal salvation. Listen, sometimes in our hardships and in our sufferings, we are looking for short-term fixes. My bank account is low, I just need more money. My health is bad, I just need to feel better. My relationship is in the toilet, I just need to get some things cleaned up. We just need to get a few things worked out. There is nothing wrong with with seeking to improve um, the situations of, of life. But listen, you and I so often focus on temporary salvation. We focus on temporary solutions when what we really need is ultimate eternal salvation. That's the biggest thing that we have to deal with. So many people come to God looking for him to fix this, that, or the other problem in their life. And what Jesus, our high priest, is offering is eternal salvation. And he's offering eternal salvation to whom? To those who obey him. That word obey in the Greek, it also could be translated as listen or respond. It's kind of used in the sense of when a parent would say, hey, you're not listening to me, meaning you're not putting into practice what it is that I'm uh, encouraging you or, or asking of you. For those who come to Jesus and obey him, who respond to him, there's eternal salvation. What does that look like? That, that very simply, if you're not a Christian, let me tell you as simply as I possibly can what that means. If you are not a Christian, what it means to receive this eternal salvation is that you repent of your sin, meaning understanding that you have broken God's law, you've chosen to live life on your own terms instead of following God's path, you've wandered away, you've said, I want to be my own God, I want to be my own master, I want to be in charge. And you repent of that, you say, no more, I'm gonna turn from that. And I'm going to turn to Jesus. And then you put your faith in Jesus. You can't come to God without faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus means believing that he is who he said he is, that he said that he was God, that he came from heaven to earth. It it means that you believe that he died on the cross in your place for your sins, that you should have been the one punished for sin, but instead Jesus was punished in your place. And yes, you believe that he rose from the grave on the third day, conquering over sin, conquering over death, conquering over our great enemy, Satan, and giving to all those who respond to him eternal life. If you're not a Christian, that's what it looks like. Repent, turn, place your faith in Jesus. And the result of that, by the way, is joy. It always leads to joy. Always leads to that feeling of freedom, of having the burden that you've been carried just taken off of your back, thrown at the foot of the cross. Jesus says, leave that here. What if you're a Christian? What does this look like? Surprise, exact same thing. If you're a Christian, the pattern of your life is ongoing repentance. The Bible says to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So the next time you sin, because you're gonna sin, the book of James says we all stumble in many ways. The book of 1 John says if we claim to not have sin, that we call God a liar. So let's just be real. Repent of your sin. God, I am sorry that I was insane and I turned away from your grace and I I sought the fleeting pleasures of sin. And then you put your faith in Jesus. Jesus, I believe that you still want to forgive me. I believe that you still have grace for me. I believe that you're still changing me. And then guess what, Christian? You also get joy. This is good news. This is the good news of the gospel. A responding to Jesus, a responding to this great high priest. Before we can deal with the temporary 
situations of life, we've got to make sure we have the ultimate question answered. Do you have eternal salvation? Have you obeyed Jesus? Have you responded with repentance and faith? This high priest, he's a very unique high priest. So let's go back to verse seven and look at, look at what it said earlier. In the days of his flesh, okay, so this is meaning during Jesus' earthly existence, his, his, his birth and then his life, his ministry, all the way up through his death, his resurrection, and then his ascension uh, back to heaven to the Father's right hand. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. Jesus was a praying high priest. Jesus was a praying savior with this phrase, with loud cries and tears. Sometimes we read the Bible too fast. Think about that phrase for a moment. Not just with crying, with loud crying. Loud crying. You ever heard somebody cry loudly? You can kind of get embarrassed for them, right? Somebody else's crying sounds odd to us. Jesus was known for loud crying and tears. <laughs> Some of you are parents, you'll know like, oh, the kid's crying, maybe they're faking it. And then you see the tears like, oh, this one's real. I got to respond, right? Jesus had loud cries and tears. He was genuinely known for being a man of loud crying and tears. Think about, think about his life. Think about the life that Jesus lived. First of all, he left heaven's glory to move to this earth, that's a bummer start. Then he grew up in relative poverty, not being born into a family of royalty or nobility, but being born into a working class family. Before he was really even walking or talking, his family had to flee for his life because the king wanted to put him to death. Then when they moved back to the hometown of Nazareth, people in the community would always give little sideways glances and whispers because, oh yeah, Mary got impregnated by the Holy Spirit and they viewed Jesus as an illegitimate bastard son and Mary as a, a, a tramp who is lying about her uh, fornication. Imagine growing up with that. We, we don't have a lot of societal pressure anymore, uh, but in those days, that was very difficult and actually a not so recent history in our country as well. When he grew up, he started his ministry. He lived his life on the road, constantly traveling, constantly uh, living on the, the generosity and donations of others. Have any of you ever uh, had a job where you spent a lot of time on the road? You know that it's not pleasant. It's not comfortable. Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And those of you who've traveled probably at least had air-conditioned cars and hotel rooms, Jesus was walking in the desert. When he started his public ministry, the religious leaders opposed him, constantly harassing him, constantly opposing him. How frustrating must that have been to Jesus because those are the very religious leaders that should have been pointing people to him, loving the people, caring for the people and saying, hey, here's the Messiah, here's the Savior. Let's follow him, let's trust him, let's worship him. Instead, they were questioning him and doubting him and opposing him. At one point during Jesus' earthly ministry, his own family came and said, hey, Jesus, you ought to tone down this Messiah, son of God rhetoric. People are starting to think you've gone unhinged. Why don't you, why don't you stop it? His own family doubted him, his own family. Even his mother, who, by the way, had an angelic visit, was starting to doubt him. Jesus had friends betray him. Judas, one of his 
closest 12 companions was not only stealing from the treasury, stealing from the money purse that they carried for their ministry, but then took 30 pieces of silver to betray Jesus, went up to him and kissed him on the cheek. Rabbi. And the soldiers knew who to arrest. That night during Jesus' trial, Peter, one of his closest friends, maybe uh, the only one closer would have been the uh, apostle John. Peter denied, I never knew Jesus. Swearing, using curse words. I, I never knew him, I swear to you. And then Jesus went through a, a mock trial. He was falsely accused. He was spit on. He had his beard pulled out. He was whipped and scourged and beaten until uh, quite literally the flesh was hanging off of his body. And then he was dragged outside of the city and he was crucified on a Roman cross. The most uh, painful way that humanity really has ever invented to kill someone. People mocked him as he hung on the cross. Jesus had a hard life. And he was known for his tears and loud crying. This reminds me of a prophecy that was spoken almost 700 years before Jesus was born. A prophet named Isaiah had a vision of this savior who would come and he describes him this way. He says, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. A man of sorrows. Think about that. One from whom men hide their faces. When you think about Jesus crying loudly, the, the scene that comes to my mind, and actually uh, many Bible commentators and, and pastors and scholars would point to the scene, the night that Jesus was betrayed and arrested in the, in the garden of Gethsemane when he was praying and when he was crying in agony. Mark tells it this way. He says, they went to a place called Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John, his, his three closest companions, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. In his accounting of this story, Luke gives us a little more information. Luke, who's a medical doctor, by the way, says, and being in great agony, he, Jesus, prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. This is an actual medical condition. It's extremely rare, but doctors and, and, and medical professionals uh, will tell you that even to this day, those under extreme agony, extreme duress will have sweat come forth from their pores. Let me ask you a question. What suffering are you going through right now? What hardship are you going through right now? Does it help you to know that whatever you're facing, Jesus faced even greater suffering? And hear me on this. I don't say that to diminish your suffering in any way. What you're facing may be incredibly serious. I know people who are facing cancer. I know people who have recently lost a loved one. I know people that are having extreme financial difficulties. I know people who are trying to break 
out of addiction. I know people who are experiencing deep depression and they can't break out of it. Whatever you're suffering, I am not trying to diminish it in any way, shape, or form, but I just want you to know that Jesus has gone further. Jesus can relate. Jesus can identify. He can sympathize. He walks with us. He learned obedience through what he suffered, remember? And now he's made a perfect high priest for us. One who doesn't come and say, what's wrong with you? Why don't you pull yourself out of this mess you're in? No, this is a high priest who shows up and says, I love you. I've been there. I know what this feels like. Would you trust me? Would you let me love you? Would you let me care for you? Would you let me walk beside you? Would you let me cry with you? Have you thought of your Jesus weeping loudly? Those times when you have been alone by yourself, crying loudly, and you thought nobody could hear you, you thought nobody knew, guess what? Jesus knew. And he was crying with you. This man of sorrows. Now, I, wanna, I, I don't want to paint too bleak of a picture here. <laughs> I don't want to paint a one, one-sided Jesus. Jesus was also quite joyful. Amen? And that should be, that should be known because, because Jesus, Jesus was full of joy. Verses like John 15, 11 say that these things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus actually has so much joy that he can't wait to share it with you. He actually has so much joy that he can share it with each one of us and fill us up. Fill us up with joy. But it must be said that the type of joy that Jesus had was not a glib or a superficial or a light type of joy, but it was a deep, meaningful joy, even in the midst of being known as the man of sorrows. Jesus is the man of sorrows and he's the savior who's full of joy. He's both, he's both. We see these incredible tensions throughout the Bible. It reminds me of of the verse in 2 Corinthians where the apostle Paul describes Christians as being sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Is that us? Is that us? We we don't want to be one-sided Christians. We do not want to be morose, somber Emo Christians who are just like, everything's hard, everything's tough, just suck it up and one day you'll die, right? Like that's not what we want to be. But we also don't want to be glib, lighthearted, you know, like the Lego movie, everything is awesome, Christians, because that's nonsense either. The Bible is incredibly honest. There are some real problems with the world. There are some real messed up situations in the world. If we're being honest, there's some real messed up stuff in our own lives, And we should be brokenhearted over those things. And yet at the same time, we have great joy because our savior was crucified, but he is risen again and he is alive forevermore. That's good news, amen? Sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. Was Jesus heard? Yes, I like this. Look at at what it says again in verse seven. It says, he he prayed to the one who was able to save him from death. Notice that it does not say he prayed to be saved from death. It says he prayed to the one who was able to save him from death. Big difference. In the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed, Father, you know, paraphrasing, if there's like a plan B that doesn't involve me being crucified for the sins of the world, I'm, I'm, I'm all ears. However, Jesus said the most important prayer that's ever been prayed, not my will, but yours be done. 
Jesus was obedient. He went through death and he prayed to the one who was able to save him from death. And that's the good news. That God the Father on the third day raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus was willing to go to hell and back so that we might have our salvation, our redemption purchased by his blood. And because of it, God, his father, saved him from death. He was heard because of his reverence. Isn't that good news? This is such good news. I, I am so thankful for the gospel in, in verses like this. Now, I, I, wanna ask, I wanna ask a couple of questions in the few minutes we have left together. I wanna ask some questions, practical questions that are raised out of this passage. Because be honest with you, when we look at this, this verse, Jesus was known for loud cries and tears. It can almost feel like, well, was Jesus depressed? The word depression doesn't appear in the Bible, but that's a modern word. But it almost kind of looks like Jesus was depressed. And if Jesus was depressed, is there any hope for me? I'm depressed, I'm sad. How do I deal with this sadness? How do I deal with this sorrow? How do I deal with this depression? So let me just give kind of four practical uh, insights, four things I think that will be helpful that can be drawn from this passage as well as um, others. And the first one is this. Depression is a complicated subject. Depression is a complicated subject. Would you agree? If you don't, I love you, you're wrong. Depression is a complicated subject. I actually was gonna put a bunch of statistics up here about depression, but it got too depressing and so I cut them all out. Depression is a complicated subject because it doesn't just have one specific cause. Sometimes depression is caused by uh, something in our life's circumstances. Someone dies, we go through a hard season and our, our, our our, our spirit, our soul settles into a deep place of sadness. Sometimes it can be caused by something physiological. We are Christians who believe that God has built and ordered our bodies in a certain way and certain chemicals, uh, our body needs them. And if we don't have them, then we can feel sad. Seasonal affective disorder is a real thing. If you don't get enough vitamin D, people start to feel sad. People start to feel depressed. It's a complicated subject though because sometimes people are depressed because of their sin. Sometimes people are depressed because they really messed up big time. They cheated on their spouse and their spouse left them and now they're depressed. Sometimes people are depressed because of other people's sin. They're the spouse that got cheated on. You didn't do anything wrong. Someone sinned against you and now you're depressed because of someone else's sin. Depression is a complicated subject. The Bible doesn't use the word depression, but it uses all sorts of other words that are related in meaning. Adversity, sorrow, feeling troubled, overwhelmed, despairing, weeping. It's a complicated subject and we must approach it with humility. We must be careful not to paint in broad sweeping strokes. Would you agree? This is what uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said. Martin Lloyd-Jones is one of my absolute favorite preachers. He was a great preacher in Wales in the uh, middle part of the 20th century. Uh, this is a total side note, but one of my kids woke up at 3.30 this morning and started crying. And after I got them put back to bed, I turned on a, a Martin Lloyd-Jones sermon and I never went back to sleep because the sermon was so interested. So I've been up since about 3.30. If I seem a little amped, it's because I had a lot of coffee this morning. <laughs> Martin Lloyd-Jones, he's a great preacher. Highly encourage you to, rec uh, to check him out. He actually wrote a book on depression in the, in the middle part of the 20th century. And this is one of the things that he says. He says, Christians often don't understand how physical, psychological, and spiritual realms interrelate. 
because Satan muddies the boundaries. Many of our troubles are caused because we think a problem is spiritual when it is physical, or we think a problem is physical when it is emotional or spiritual. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a medical doctor for years. He had a practice before God called him into the preaching ministry. All all I'm trying to say is we need to approach the subject of depression with humility. Which leads me to my second point. It is not a sin to be sorrowful. Let me say that again. It is not a sin to be sorrowful because Jesus himself is the man of sorrows. If it was a sin to feel sad, if it was a sin to feel sorrowful, then Jesus would have been guilty of sin. It is not a sin to be sorrowful. Let me, let me say this though. Remember, we have to be careful. You may be sorrowful because you sinned. <laughs> they may be related. Here's another one. You may be so sorrowful that you are tempted to despair and lose hope in Jesus. Don't do that. That's not good. That's not what God wants for you. But in and of itself, it is not a sin to be sorrowful. It is not even sinful to feel depressed. Can I say that? Think about the people of God in the Bible. Moses, Job, Elijah, the Apostle Paul, Jeremiah. Think about people of God throughout church history. You know, uh, hundreds of years ago, the Puritans wrote and spoke extensively on depression. Their word for it in their time was melancholy. There's a Puritan preacher uh, named Richard Baxter who wrote extensively on it. Uh, One of my other favorite preachers from the uh, 19th century, Charles Spurgeon, battled depression his entire life. And he had a very uh, painful and debilitating physical sickness that caused his depression. It actually ended up ending his life. It's what he died from. But he fought depression his entire life. C.S. Lewis, another uh, beloved author from the 20th century, he wrote a book on joy. And then many years later, he had gotten married and his wife died. And he wrote a book on grief. It's called A Grief Observed. He wrote it originally under a pseudonym because he didn't want people to know these awful dark thoughts that he was feeling about grief. I'll read, I'll read you one quote. This is C.S. Lewis talking about his darkest days. Meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you're happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, if you turn to him then with praise will be welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. And after that, silence. You may as well turn away. Our boy Clive is having a rough day. <laughs> Some of you need to cry. Some of you need to cry. Jesus, let me, let me speak to the men. Some of you men need to cry. I would dare say that Jesus is the manliest man who ever lived and he was known for his loud crying and tears. Some of you need to cry. Sometimes it is those who are sorrowful who actually have more they're more in touch with the brokenness in the world. They actually can see through some of the nonsense. They can see through some of the veneer and they can see that, that things are broken and things are messed up. You need to have permission to cry, which leads me to my third point. People who experience depression, they need care and compassion, not platitudes or prodding. People experiencing depression need care 
and compassion, not platitudes and prodding. Also, let me just say this. It's not in the point, but people experiencing depression need friends who will actually jump in. Let's be honest. How many of you ever had a friend who was sad or sorrowful going through a rough patch and you felt kind of awkward because you just didn't know what to say? Anybody? That's not a good response. We do need to dive in. But there's a way to dive in rightly and a way to dive in wrongly. Platitudes. Oh, it gets better. Oh, all things work together for a reason. Or my favorite misquoted Bible verse of all time, all things work together. When you, see, when you hear non-Christians quoting that one, that's the worst. All things work together, or you know, just keep swimming, like whatever. Theology of Dory and Finding Nemo. <laughs> I, I did. I have small kids, it comes out. Right, like these platitudes, things that are on a bumper sticker, things that are on a, on a, on a note card. If, if, if the book of Job teaches us anything, it's that the friends of Job did much better when they sat with him in silence for seven days than when they opened their mouths and started talking. After they started talking, everything goes downhill from there. Now, people who are experiencing depression do need to be reminded of the truth of God's word, but not in a platitude sort of way. Oh, here, let me just drop a little bomb on you. It gets better. When? And they certainly don't need prodding. Hey, get up. Come on. You, you have control over this. You're better than this. Get out. Get out of the darkness. Come on, let's go. That just, oh. If you've ever experienced depression, you know that that is not helpful. I was actually, I was researching a, a, a certain, uh, I'll say preacher who shall remain nameless. I was reading one of his, uh, one of his books uh, for research. This is what he said. His last name rhymes with boasting, if you're wondering. As wise, he's just talking about this. He says, happiness is a choice. When you wake up in the morning, you can choose what kind of day you want to have. You can choose to be in a good mood or you can choose to be in a bad mood. Like what salt in the wounds? What godless words to someone who is in the middle of suffering? Hey, it's just a choice, man. Get up, have a good day. Nonsense, Amen. nonsense. There's a way to help people in the middle of their suffering that looks nothing like that. It looks like persevering. It looks like being their friend. Sometimes you might not have the right words to say. Sometimes you tell them, I don't even know if I have the right words to say, but I love you and I'm here for you and I'll cry with you and I'll hold your hand and I'll see your ugly cry face and I won't even judge you. Like whatever it looks like. But here's the, here's the big idea. We need community. We need relationship. We need other people in our lives. Amen? The time to invest in community is not after you start going through hardship and suffering. It's before. I had a great conversation with someone after the first service today who said that he doesn't know where his life would be these last few months. He has faced some incredible hardships. He doesn't know where his life would be if not for the community of believers that God has surrounded him with. Make sure you have people in your life. If you're one of those friends, be brave, be willing to dive in. And this is my last point, I'll close with this. If you're someone who is experiencing depression, I beg you, please don't give up hope. If you're a Christian, there's always hope because we serve a savior who went through death and came out on the other side unscathed. I don't know if or when the darkness will lift. I don't know. But I do know this. The book ends with our savior Jesus returning. And it says he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Amen. And eternity is peace with God, shalom, joy. No more sorrow, no more suffering. It may lift in this lifetime, it may lift in the next, but do not give up believing 
that one day it truly does get better and not in that nonsensy platitude sort of way. I speak that not on my own authority, but on the authority of the word of God. When I was younger, um, someone I love very dearly, my own dad went through a season of depression. We had planted a church when I was in high school and after about five or six years, uh, I was in college at the time. He came to myself and some other people on the leadership team and he said, I can't do this anymore. I've hit a wall. For my dad, it was, again, complicated, a multiplicity of factors, some physiological, some spiritual, some just circumstantial. He was really depleted. He says, we either need to shut this church down or somebody else has to take over preaching because I can't do it anymore. And I said, well, I haven't stopped talking since the day I learned how I guess I could probably preach. And so in my college years, I got a lot of experience uh, preaching. Thank God none of those sermons are online. Thank you, Jesus. Um, But I, I got to preach a lot because my dad just hit this wall of depression and I watched him face this for years, years of just a deep darkness of the soul. And I'm happy to say that on the other side, God pulled him out and my dad has experienced more joy recently than maybe any time I can remember in my life. But sometimes it takes some waiting. This quote from John Piper, he says it this way, I've known saints who walked through eight years of debilitating depression and came out into the glorious light. Only God knows how long we must wait. The prophet Micah experienced the prolonged and painful waiting. I sit in darkness until the Lord pleads my cause and will bring me out to the light. We can draw no deadlines for God. He hastens or he delays as he sees fit and his timing is all loving toward his children. Oh, that we might learn to be patient in the hour of darkness. I don't mean that we make peace with the darkness. We fight for joy, but we fight as those who are saved by grace and held by Christ. If you're someone who's experiencing depression, keep fighting. Believe that the gospel's true. Believe that God is on your side. Tell somebody, let them be in your corner. They'll probably do it imperfectly. Would you show them some grace as they show you grace? And may we always remember that we serve a God of eternal hope. Psalm 30 verse five says, weeping may last for the night, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. We have great hope. We may be sorrowful, yet we are always rejoicing. Amen, church. I just wanna pray real quick. God, I, I pray right now for any of my brothers and sisters who are here who may be experiencing sorrow or depression. God, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you'd help them know that your word gives them permission to face that. They don't need to pretend. They don't need to hide it. They don't need to lie. They don't need to grin and bear it. They don't need to just make a choice to be happy today. But that Lord Jesus, you meet with them in their deep sorrow. God, for those who are not experiencing depression, would you help us? Would you empower us and equip us by your Holy Spirit to love and care for those who are sorrowful and depressed? May all of us seek to honor Jesus in whatever stage of life we might be in. Amen. Church, we're gonna respond now to Jesus. We're gonna respond in a few ways as we usually do. The first is through the giving of our tithes and offerings. So if the financial stewards would please come forward and collect the offering, I'd greatly appreciate that. If you're a guest, you're not obliged to give. This is something we do uh, to honor and worship our savior, Jesus. If you want information about how to text to give or how to give online, that's in your handout that you were given. While they're doing that, let me read some questions to prompt discussion and conversation this week. 
In what sense did Jesus learn obedience? And in what sense was Jesus made perfect? Discuss ways that these ideas can be misunderstood. Number two, do you think of Jesus as both joyful and sorrowful? Do you struggle with one or the other? Do you maybe tend towards one ditch or the other? Number three, where are you experiencing sadness or even depression? And share with your community groups and other friends. Uh, Let me say, I didn't mention this specifically during the sermon, but if you're someone who is contemplating suicide, if your sadness has gotten that bad, please don't leave the building today without letting somebody know because we want to love you and pray for you and care for you. Uh, And that may look uh, like a wide variety of, of actions, but we want to love you in that. Share with your community group and friends. How many of you are really looking forward to an upbeat community group this week, by the way? Um, (laughs) I just thought about that, sorry. If you are not currently experiencing depression, how does God want you to grow in your ability to lovingly, carefully help others who are? Some things to pray about because we wanna be a praying church as well. Pray for those who are experiencing sorrow that they may receive comfort and joy. Uh, If you are one of those who are currently experiencing sorrow, depression, Pray that you would not waste this opportunity to glorify God even in the sadness. And number three, pray for those who are not yet Christians that they would come to know ultimate joy and comfort in Jesus. And we're gonna respond with a celebration of the Lord's table of communion. And get this, how crazy is it that every week we gather at this table and we memorialize, we remember an execution a violent death of our Savior, his body broken, his blood shed. Don't let those words sound like a religious cliche to you. This is violence that we are celebrating. But it is good because in this broken body and shed blood of Jesus, we find salvation. So today, let's take communion as sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. Let's weep and let's laugh. Let's weep more loudly and laugh more loudly. Amen, church? And then let's sing. Pastor Joe and the team, we're gonna lead in some song that that speaks of this tension, that speaks of this uh, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. And so let me do this. Let me invite you to stand and we'll pray and then we'll respond with communion and singing. God, I thank you for the honesty that your word comes to us with. I thank you that we don't have to shy away from these tough topics. I thank you that we don't have to pretend like everything's okay, but that we have a savior who meets with us in the sadness. I pray now, Lord God, that you'd fill our lungs with song, that we might lift up the name of Jesus and we might uh, rejoice in whatever circumstances we are currently facing. We pray all of this in the good name of Jesus. Amen.